The English language is loaded with words that describe our desire for accumulating wealth. We say that people are greedy, grasping, or money-grubbing, that they are acquisitive and materialistic, or venal, avaricious, and covetous. Then there are those words that describe our unwillingness to spend or to share what we have already accumulated. Stingy, miserly, mean, penny-pinching, tight-fisted, and parsimonious are just a few. So many great words to describe one thing, and that is our unhealthy relationship with wealth. What is it? What is it about money that makes us want more and more? What is it about wealth that once we have it, we just can't part with it? The preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes talks about our love of money and our desire of wealth quite a bit. He returns to it as a regular theme of life under the sun, and he describes it as a deceptive force that has the power to drag us through life before dumping us off at death's door. Now, by his own admission, the author of this book was among the wealthiest men of his time, and he lived long enough to realize that the wealth he had accumulated couldn't live up to its end of the bargain. Throughout this little book, he returns to the topic again and again and again in order to make sure we don't make the same mistake that he did. This is a special focus of much of chapters five and six, which we read just a few moments ago. This morning, we're going to look, uh, we're going to take a look at the preacher's reflections on wealth. And in particular, we're going to consider four empty promises that wealth makes to us. Promises that fuel this desire that we have to accumulate it, and promises that explain our inability to part with it. Well, having examined these empty promises, we're going to conclude by considering the preacher's unexpected invitation to joy. So I hope you'll turn to page 555, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, so that you can follow along with me. And as you turn there, I want to offer a, a clarification and an explanation. First, a clarification about what the preacher is doing and what he's not doing. The preacher is not interested in bashing the wealthy. He does not think that poverty is a wonderful thing. He's not trying to convince us that money's bad. What he is doing is warning us away from the poison of empty promises and inviting us to see the good things of this world in a radically new way. Because of this, and this is incredibly important for us, his words of warning aren't just for other people, those people who have more than we have. His warnings are for all of us, regardless of what we have or what we want. So that's a clarification. Second, an explanation about terminology. When the preacher talks about money and wealth, he does so interchangeably. And I'm going to do this as well. And this means that we're not just talking about cash or about liquid assets. When the preacher talks about wealth, he's referring to everything of value, from clothes to property to jewelry to carefully diversified investments. He's talking about all the stuff of life in which we are tempted to place our hopes. So let's begin with the first empty promise, which is this. Wealth will bring you satisfaction. 
Wealth will bring you satisfaction. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So the promise that we're made is this. You can accumulate enough money and stuff to satisfy your desire for good things. If you just reach this number or buy these things, you won't feel that itch for more. You won't need to work another day. You'll be satisfied with what you have. Now, we all know from experience how false this is. Buy a brand new car, and six months later, a new model comes out with a few unnecessary but totally amazing technology upgrades, and you want it. Of course, you don't need it. You're not going to know how to work the tech anyway. But you know, the car you're driving, it no longer satisfies you because you know there's something better out there. Notice the two parts of the preacher's claim in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now that's simple enough. Lots of cash won't make you happy. But, but what about the person who has accumulated enough wealth that he or she can live off the income that it generates, the interest that it generates. This is a guy who reaches financial independence and retires early. And I think it's this person that the preacher is speaking to when he says in the second half of verse 10, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You see the difference between the two halves of that verse? Both are vanity. Eugene Henderson is the main character in Saul Bellow's famous 1959 novel, Henderson, the Rain King. And Henderson lives on a family estate in Danbury, Connecticut, and he reaps the rewards of several generations of extraordinary wealth. His life, though, his life is marked by a seething sense of dissatisfaction that drives him from woman to woman, hobby to hobby, and adventure to adventure. He describes the voice in his head that pushes him from one thing to the next as crying out, I want, I want, but with no clear sense of what it wants or why. At one point, reflecting on the state of his soul, Henderson says hauntingly, my soul is like a pawn shop. I mean, it's filled with unredeemed pleasures, old clarinets and cameras and moth-eaten fur. He's never satisfied with what he has. And when he gets what he wants, the only thing that sticks with him is a hunger for something else. Every pleasure is unredeemed. This is the way that wealth works. It gets us what we want, but it can't satisfy our deepest needs. And the preacher paints a morbid picture of this kind of life in chapter six, verse three, where he says, if a man fathers a hundred children, and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul isn't satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. A man can have everything and still not be satisfied. And that man, the preacher says, would have been better off never being born. As one commentator explains, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. 
Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. So wealth promises to satisfy, but it leaves us hungrier than ever. That's the first empty promise. The second is that wealth will give us our independence. Wealth will give us our independence. In the parable of the prodigal son, when the son comes to his father and demands his inheritance, what he's looking for is independence. He wants to make his own decisions. He doesn't want to rely on others or ask for permission. Now, we can all appreciate this desire for independence and the apparent freedom that comes with it. And wealth is the easiest way we can think of to secure it. But according to the preacher, the promise is empty. In chapter 5, verse 11, the preacher says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, this is an easy verse to rush past, but it captures something powerfully true. The more money you have, the more mouths there are to feed. Instead of independence, wealth gives you greater responsibility. This happens whether you want to use your wealth wisely or just for your own good. So when a young man signs a contract with the NFL and receives a ludicrously large signing bonus, his life suddenly gets very complicated. He feels duty-bound to buy his parents a new home. His siblings are suddenly very nice to him for the first time ever. Friends from childhood start texting. People who never paid attention to him are now very attentive. You know, when you are wealthy, True friendship is incredibly elusive. You're always asking yourself, does he like me or my money? You have to be cautious, lest you get taken advantage of or just waste your time. And yet, real friendship requires trust and vulnerability, which means eventually you have to take some risks. But that's hard, especially for people who are trying to protect themselves and their things. The loneliest people, the loneliest people I have ever met are also among the wealthiest. Wealth promises independence, but what we get is a strange kind of isolation with very few close friends and scores of hangers-on. Wealth also creates all kinds of unexpected encumbrances things that weigh you down with additional responsibility. So this is quite simple. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you have, the more there is to care for. So we think that wealth will give us independence, but these things that we accumulate, they create an incredible amount of drag on our lives. Wealth promises freedom and independence where all of the little nuisances of life are outsourced And we don't have to answer to anyone. But what it delivers, what it delivers is greater complexity, increased responsibility, and unexpected isolation. Now, it's not necessarily bad to be wealthy or to have more things. They just will never get us what we want or truly need. Third empty promise that wealth makes us is that it will give us rest in a world that never stops. 
So for many of us, the thing that makes us want to accumulate wealth more than any other thing is the thought of being able to finally stop and rest. If I no longer have to work, I think, then maybe I can take that month-long vacation in the Caribbean that I've been wanting to take. But the preacher bursts this bubble with another one-liner in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, it's unclear whether the sleep, sleeplessness of the wealthy here is due to overindulgence at the dinner table or to anxiety. Is this the sleeplessness that comes from too much wine and red meat? Or is this the sleeplessness that comes from too much responsibility or worry about the future? I don't know, and I'm not sure we have to choose because both can clearly be present at the same time. I think we all know what it's like to lie awake at night with the regrets of the day churning through our minds only to be replaced by the worries of tomorrow. Most of us have this idea that if we can squirrel away enough resources, many of these worries will just fade into the distance. But I can tell you, rich people take just as many sleeping pills as poor people, probably more. Wealth promises us a chance to stop and to rest, but it gives us sleepless nights instead because the more you have, the more there is to worry about. The preacher emphasizes this in verse 17 where he writes, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Money gives you the ability to stop and rest for a few days at a nice resort, but not to truly rest because money can't do anything to cure our latent anxieties. Well, this false promise of rest, it's closely related to the fourth and final promise that wealth makes us, which is this, that we can finally be in control of our lives. Verses 13 to 16. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? This is the age-old story of a wealthy man who lost everything in a bad business deal, died penniless, and left his sole heir with nothing but debt. As hard as he tried to hold on to his wealth, he was only grasping at air. Now you can control the temperature in your room with a thermostat. You can control the scent of your home by lighting a candle. You can shift the blinds at the window or dim the chandelier to control the amount of light. You can eat at a particular time and you can drink whatever you want but you cannot control the fact that your daughter has cancer or that your marriage is a wreck. One of the most destructive deceptions inflicted on us by our wealth is the way it convinces us that we can be in control of our lives. Now, if you are poor, 
you know you are not in control. You wait for the bus. You cannot adjust the temperature. The person next to you smells bad. The sun is in your eyes. You're going to be late for dinner where you will be drinking water. Every moment of every day, you are reminded that you are not in control. But for the wealthy, for us, every modern convenience conspires to convince us that maybe, just maybe, we can be in control. And we begin to think like gods, assuming and planning and making decisions as if nothing can stop us until a child falls ill or a friend stabs you in the back or you, or you feel a lump in your breast. And then reality comes crashing in. That, I think, that is the cruelest thing about wealth. And it's the false promise that the preacher comes back to again and again and again as he reflects on his own mortality. At the end of the day, we can control the temperature in the room, but we cannot control the time of our death. Wealth lies to us. It lies to us. We accumulate it because it promises satisfaction, independence, rest, and control. But what does it actually do for us? Growing wealth only produces greater hunger. Instead of independence, it creates lots of dependence. And it breeds a special kind of loneliness. Instead of rest, it brings sleepless nights. And it convinces us that we can be in control of our lives when in fact our very next breath could be our last. So what do we do? This is a little discouraging. What do we do? Do we, do we just give away all our money and all our stuff? Well, Jesus actually suggests this at least once to the rich young ruler. Shedding yourself of everything you don't need can be a good and healthy thing. But I have to tell you, that on its own won't deal with the deeper issues of the heart that wealth so wickedly takes advantage of. Those are here to stay, and they have to be addressed if we're ever to reorient our attitude toward wealth and toward the things that we have. And this is where I want to shift your attention to verses 18 to 20 of chapter 5, and the preacher's completely unexpected invitation to joy dropped right in the middle of this sobering reflection. So this is what he says, Behold, <clears throat> what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift from God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There are two little things I want you to notice in this paragraph. The first is God. He's mentioned four times. God does not come up a lot in Ecclesiastes, but here, four times in a row, we came across a similar passage last week in chapter three, and that's the rhythm of Ecclesiastes. The, pe the preacher takes us up to the point of despair by exposing the vanity of life under the sun. And then he pulls us back from the edge of the cliff by telling us that there is more to life than what we see. 
In this context, his point is as profound as it is simple. And it's this, you will never be truly satisfied apart from God because you hunger for things the world can't provide. You will never be independent because you weren't made to be independent. You were made to belong to God. You will never find rest until you come to trust the one who made you. Only then will you learn to sleep at night. And you will never be in control because only God is in control. Only when you surrender to him will you find deep satisfaction, true freedom, and ultimate rest. God himself is the source and the center of everything we need. So that's the first thing to notice in this paragraph. The second is the repetition of the verb to give. Notice what God, do, what God does in these sentences. He gives. He gives life in verse 18, wealth and possessions in verse 19, and he gives us the power to enjoy life in verse 19. Having given us these things, the preacher says in verse 20 that he keeps us occupied with joy in our hearts. All the things we look for as we accumulate our wealth, we can only find in the God who made us. And we find them not as something we earn or achieve through good works or through religious devotion, but as something that we're given. That's grace. So many words in the English language to describe our greed, our envy, our miserliness. One word. One word is all that's needed to describe the goodness of God, and that is grace. And we find this grace as we put our trust and our hope in our Lord Jesus. So I want to end with an image and a question. Is your life an open hand or is your life a clenched fist? Are you always grasping? Are you always holding on tight to what you have and seeking always to grab hold of more? Or have you loosened your grip, allowing your fingers to unfurl and opened your hand to God? Recognizing that everything you have is a gift that you've been given. And everything you have, therefore, is a gift that you can give. These hands of ours, they were made to be open. To receive God's extravagant grace. And to give generously to those around us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, these words from Ecclesiastes, they hit home. They leave us feeling tender and exposed and indeed confused as to our own motivations. We pray that you would expose the lies that we've chosen to believe, that you would topple the idols in our hearts, that you would take our fingers and pull them one by one and take the clenched fist that we have and turn it into an open hand that we might receive the gift of your grace and we might live with generosity to those around us. We pray this 
not just for your glory, O Lord, but for our good. Amen.